The United States are celebrating independence this weekend. You see a little bit of my bias there when I say the United States are. I'm from West Virginia. I'm one of the United States. And it's a wonderful thing, and, you know, it's a proper thing to celebrate. Many of us have, well, all of us have Canadian friends and relatives. I guess Will's lot is the only one still Canadian here. Arlene, she's my favorite. Uh, but they just celebrated Canada Day, Dominion Day, Friday. I've been thinking about freedom. Freedom from sin. Who among you is without sin? I hope you don't have any rocks if you answer me. None of us. Recently, and going into the future, you've been looking into Paul's letter to the Romans. and Chapters 2 and 3 tells us that we're all violators of some kind of law. It may not be the law. Never notice this. I'm not a an anthropologist or an expert in anything, I guess, except maybe around your football. Uh, but all people everywhere have always had some sort of law. Moray, personal ethics. Let me ask you this. Has anyone here ever kept his own personal law 100%? I mean, even if it wasn't anything like God's law, I mean, the things I believe I ought to do or ought not to do, I don't even keep those. We've learned that from the epistle of Romans. In chapter 3, we find out Paul saying there's not any righteous, not even one. How many times as we've lived around the world have I tried to say it in West Virginians and I say there's none righteous, not nary, ary one. And it's true, and it's more than just a catchphrase. In chapter 4, we find out that we believers were counted righteous. We're declared to be righteous. In chapter 5, that famous portion, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's all good stuff, isn't it? That's good Independence Day stuff, I think, right there. In 1776, our forefathers declared that we were free from King George III. But we certainly weren't free from King George, and we certainly weren't independent. But rather we fought a war that lasted from 1775 to 1783 and then was reprised in 1812. How like us. We've been declared righteous. And positionally, we are. But the war is not over, is it? It's still, we're sort of like our American revolutionary forefathers. We declared that we're free, but we fought and fought and fought, and still there's turmoil and wars and difficulties. In life, for the believer, there's some important things. We, we have attempted here today, and I think we've, we've met with the Lord in this place, not only reading the scripture and reciting what we believe from the Apostles' Creed, but sharing the Lord's table together. But we're still doing all this in the body of sin. Now, Romans chapter 6 is one of my first 
favorite chapters, verse 11. Now, <clears throat> I've learned that we should reckon ourselves dead to sin. The English Standard Version says, consider yourself to be dead to sin. That's a help, isn't it? I mean, you know, I don't have to. I can think about it. According to the Bible, what Jesus has done for me, he became sin for me. He who didn't know any sin became sin on my behalf. So I can consider myself dead to sin. It says this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. But still there's no discharge in this war. My father, one of our nation's heroes, one of the members of the 98th Air Force in World War II, when he was enlisted in the Army Air Corps, Air Corps he was enlisted for the duration. That's where we are. We're in it for the duration. You and I, friends, are also yet very dependent. Pray with me. Lord, we stand before you sit before you, weak and sometimes discouraged children. Help us, Lord, to forget about our own self. Think about the Savior whose name we pray this morning. May we examine our own heart and not our neighbors. As a matter of fact, Lord, we've got plenty to do to examine our own selves. So we pray, Lord, you'd accomplish in us today what you'd have take all the glory for it because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Providence Bible Church contains is made up of several people, many of them covenant members, many of them just regular attenders. Uh, you may sit in your seat today and imagine that I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you, who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Put your hand up. Okay, let me tell you something else. In the Old and New Testament both, we don't find lone rangers who have a personal relationship with God alone. They're always in corporate bodies, always a part of the church in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we won't go there this morning, uh, but you're all familiar with it. We're all together, even though we're individuals, we make up one body in Christ. The Old Testament testifies to corporate gathering of people. Remember when the, the prophet thought, man, I'm just going to... I always think of this. My pastor of many years ago used to say, everybody, I said, nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to just go out in the garden and eat worms. I've heard that before. There was a prophet in the Old Testament that thought that way, didn't he? I mean, just think what he'd done on Mount Carmel and what a victory. And then he's running from Jezebel and he's hiding and he said, Lord... Just go ahead and kill me because I'm the only one left. Remember the response he got from God? I got 7,000 folks that's never bowed to Baal. People, you can't have a personal relationship with Christ without the body of Christ. That's where Christianity exists, not in some vacuum. The New Testament reveals that there's a continuing gathering of people. That's why we have all the epistles. I like the epistles. Now, I heard one fellow ask one time about the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, and his point was First Samuel 
was no more inspired than Romans. But if you're stuck on a deserted island, which would you rather have, First Samuel or Romans? To us, the epistles are more important in this sense. They're written to us. They're written to churches to catechize us, to teach us. To teach us that we're not lone rangers, but we're part of the body of Christ. And it's not about us, even as individuals, but it's about the body and about Christ himself. Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews puts it this way, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. Now Jason and I have really just getting to know one another. and We haven't picked each other's brain about every kind of point of doctrine there is. <clears throat> but most of us are kind of soft on eschatology. We both admit that we don't really know exactly what's going to happen in the future. That's refreshing to me because I, I get weary of people that have all the answers. But I know this, he's coming. And I believe that not because I see signs everywhere, but because he said he's coming. And I believe it. And I believe that we're instructed to encourage one another, provoke is the King James word, to love and to good works. And so much the more as we get closer to the day of the Lord. So I want to speak this morning just for a few minutes about what we, people who have been declared free and corporately bound together in Christ, must be faithful to do when we meet together. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. You have it there, right? Okay. Beginning at verse 17, I'll read down through verse 26. Well, let me say this before I read that. I'll give you a little background. You know, Jesus has prepared the Passover meal. Uh, today, you and I, each of us have shared the sacrament, the Lord's table together. <clears throat> this passage that you read on the board and I'll read in your hearing is only one of the gospel examples of that first Passover. Uh, but I think it's well that you and I think about, and I'm not going to tell you how, how we ought to do this. I'm going to tell you why we ought to do it. I'm telling you what our heart's attitude ought to be when we do the Lord's table together. But Mark 14 provides one of the, one of the gospel accounts of the Passover. Jesus has already sent his disciples out and made arrangements, told them what to do. You know the story. They found the place. They prepared the room. And here we are in verse 17. <clears throat> and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. <clears throat> and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, 
This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The context of this passage that found in chapter 14 of Mark causes me to think about this aspect. I want, I want you to think with me. We have so many lessons in the scripture. We have historical accounts. I mean, let me, and we'll do a little test. So you, if you're under 20 years of age, you can answer this question if you know the answer. If we're telling an Old Testament story and we said it's about Jonah and the whale or fish, that's good. How about Daniel in the Oh, that's pretty. That's a pretty smart class right here. Must have been catechized a little bit. How about <clears throat> Jesus, Mary, and somebody said Joseph. Now, the reason I did that is listen to this. That's all great, but you know, there, Jonah was a real person. Daniel was a real person, and they were real lions. Think about the reality of this Passover. It's not, it is an example for us, but it was real in space and time to these people. What happened that week? Jesus had been hanging out at Bethany, Bethany at Simon's house, a leper man. That's where he was hanging out that week. Uh, John tells us that Mary, that is Lazarus and Martha's sister, had anointed the feet of Jesus there prior to this supper. Some of them had indignation over that because she wasted something really valuable, remember? And it wasn't just Judas. Matter of fact, I'll tell you what. If I'd have been there, I might have thought, wouldn't it have been better to give that money to the poor? That's what's happening leading up to this supper. Then Jesus uh, is sold out. Judas goes out to sell out the Lord Christ. Verse 9 says this, and this is a memorial, since this is a day that we remember things about that anointing of Jesus' feet. It says this, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. <clears throat> real people, real time, real experience. The Bible tells us that things happen to people for examples to us who, upon whom the ends of the world have come. It's great. But while we're taking advantage of the examples, just think, these people lived this. And it wasn't just a textbook, but a test of their very lives. By special arrangement, preparation is made sovereignly for the supper. And then Jesus revealed that Somebody's going to betray me. And they all look, is it me, is it me, is it me? Notice they didn't say, is it Rodney? Is it Hamlet? Is it Brian? Matter of fact, Brian's already gone. Oh, there he is. Uh, but they said, is it I? I thought that was significant, even as I read it. What do we take of it as Providence Bible Church? Most of us, I believe including myself, have been taught that the practice of the communion table is 
that these elements are only memorials. And we show his death till he comes. They certainly are memorials, just like Jesus left a memorial to Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus. But some people believe in what they call the Mass. Something originating from man, not from God, in which they believe the real presence of Jesus is somehow becomes part of. I can never pronounce that word. Trans. Help me. Not transportation. <clears throat> Transubstantiation. Uh, you know, the priest does something in Latin that's hocus pocus, and they literally, and they. Um, it becomes, and I don't mean to belittle or make fun of people because I'm an ignorant person too. But that can't be what the scripture means. Some people believe that in co-transubstantiation, in other words, he's both there and in a spiritual sense. Hey, I don't know. But I tell you what, I can't say I believe in the real presence of Jesus in these elements, but I can tell you this, look me in the eye. I don't believe in his real absence either. I believe that the Lord gave us this for some purpose, for our own good and for memorial to the Savior who died for us. So I'm less concerned about how we do it. I'm more concerned with why and what our attitude should be when we do this. Literally, he said, this is my body. I mean, he was right there. It doesn't take any more education than I have to understand he didn't mean that these elements were his body because he was there in his body. And that's, matter of fact, Scripture's full of those kinds of statements. And I've written some of them down there so I can remember there's seven good cows are seven years. You are the head of gold. The field is the world. This rock is Christ. The seven lampstands are the, lampstands are the seven churches. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine. What's that called? Metaphor? Jesus said, this is my body. Obviously, meaning it represents his body. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, over to John's Gospel, chapter 14. I'm going to read a passage that perhaps you haven't heard maybe since you've attended a funeral because that's where we use it so much. Those Beloved words of John chapter 14 that are comforting to us. And it begin, let not your heart be troubled. You know that. But I want to notice something else with me. Uh, the last verses of chapter 13 are part of the same context. Jesus is telling Peter that, hey, better get off your high horse. You're not as smart. You're not as brave. You're not as faithful as you think you are. Because there's this little thing about a rooster. You may have heard about it. Just notice that what he tells Peter is followed immediately by uh, an encouragement not to be troubled. Verse, the last verse is verse 38. Well, let's go to verse 37 of chapter 13. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be 
travel. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Jason, give me the portion of the song that we sang today. Sing that, Jason. Oh, almighty Lord, saints and angels all adore, join with them and bow down for Jesus, only Jesus. Think about that with me. When we were singing that earlier, I thought, man, that's good right there. I could just camp there for a little while. We're celebrating the Lord's table till he comes. Who are we in fellowship with? I appreciated Jason saying that, you know, this is not Providence Bible Church table, but it's the Lord's table. And it is. And yet in a unique sense, it's ours too. Ours to enjoy together. But thinking again about what's real, reality. You realize that I mentioned my father, uh, now in heaven for four years. Uh, I'm in fellowship with him. I'm in fellowship with those saints of the Old Testament, new that we read about. We have fellowship with brothers and sisters around the world in countries and languages, but not only them, but the folks in heaven as well. All the saints and angels adore, and I am join with them and bow before Jesus only. I remember once in just visiting with Providence, John Kerry was there, not a politician. But either John that we know. And in the discussion at, at the communion table, he shared that it impressed him to think that Jesus Christ took a cup fell to his mouth and swallowed it. He was a man like me, John said. And I've never forgotten that. I thought, Jesus Christ is the God-man. It's not just Sunday school stuff. It's not a glossary of terms. It's a real man, Jesus, who took my sin upon him. Experienced life like we do. And now we're invited to memorialize what he's done for us. And not just with those in this room, but with those that are in Christ from all ages. Well, who's the table for? Communion, or common union, is born out of union with Christ. Only those in union with Christ have fellowship with him. They share in his body, his blood, and consequently are united to him. I think this is why Paul included a warning 
that Jason read this morning. You know, people didn't discern the Lord's body. Didn't, if you take it into account, you realize what we're doing? We're not saying the ABCs or even reciting a creed like we did this morning. But we're declaring that we're united with Jesus Christ. That's what we declare at the Lord's table. That's why warnings are so severe. They must, you know, he must have had a reason. Matter of fact, he said, that's why some people are dead because they didn't discern the body of the Lord. Not the church so much, but the person of Jesus Christ. But that's the bad news. But the good news is this, verse 28, let a person examine himself and then let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. You know, practices historically have been different in a lot of different bodies. Some of my favorite heroes of the past had practices like to issue tickets. You know, you couldn't, you had to reach certain requirements to be eligible. And I got, I don't agree, but I understand. I understand that. The point I'm making is faithful Christians in years past have been a lot more serious about the Lord's table than I'm afraid we have become. It's not playing church, people. This is serious business. There are Christians today celebrating this memorial supper all around the world. Some use real wine. And there's some good arguments for that use. Some use juice. Some drink from a common cup. Some places the priest is the only one that drinks anything at all. Some dip the bread in the juice. We've attended one service one time that we did that. Uh, some people form a circle to take communion and hold hands. I've seen that. Another occasion we were in a service where they held candles. And, and most, I think, have elders or deacons serve the congregation the elements. Some, like us, have participants serving themselves the elements. Some use real wine and unleavened bread. Others use soda crackers and Coca-Cola. Or Pepsi, if Will's in the crowd. <laughs> I think it does matter. I think we ought to be as careful as we can to determine what the Lord would have us to do. I, I don't mean to say all these things are okay. But I know a lot of people that love the Lord as much as me and are faithful to Him use some of these methods. And it's not my purpose. I'm not their pastor to teach them a better way. But my point is this, and I'm going to try to get to it. It's not about any of these particular things, these methods, but rather about us, about our heart attitude, about acknowledging our sin. If you examine yourself, if you realize this is a serious matter, and you examine yourself and you find that man, I, I'm a sinner. And you're in good shape then. Because then you know what's true. Then you fall on Jesus. We sang that too. We fall apart. We need to fall on Him. So I don't want to discourage anyone. Unless you're playing church. 
unless you don't really know Jesus Christ and you think, well, this is what they do there, so I don't want to be left out, so I'll just participate. I beg you not to do that because this is not just a ritual. Although it is ritual, it's representative of something very dear and serious. I want us to examine our hearts, our attitudes, and by examining ourselves, bring about repentance. The gospel's for Christians. I need the gospel. I need to be reminded of who I am without Christ and how wonderfully I am saved in Christ and it's all His glory and I have nothing to glory in except Jesus knows me. This I love. Isn't that good? If you participate in the Lord's table and you don't know Christ, you're wrong. But if you think it's just another religious ritual and it doesn't really matter, then you're playing church. But if you realize that you're a sinner and your only hope is in Christ and He's died for you, He's forgiven your sin, what a joyful thing it is to participate in this memorial supper. Then a church that is fessed up repented up in fellowship with one another can then impact the ends of the earth of the end of time. Stand with me. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen.